0: Uh, we're going to be in Hebrews 12 again this week if you want to take uh, one of those blue hardback pew Bibles, say ESV on the front, and find your place there. If you don't have a Bible, by the way, please take one of those. That's our gift to you. If you happen to be kind of new to this whole Christian journey, uh, we want you to have a Bible, so please take that with you. Um, Last week, originally it was supposed to be Hebrews twelve three through seventeen, um, and we just covered verses three through eleven. Instead, that was kind of an audible that was called later in the week, and um, when I, when Amber Jacoby, who uh, is our administrative assistant, uh, went to go and deal with that uh, recording in terms of how it should be posted and under what name. She said, well, it was supposed to be better resilience because it's all those verses, but probably better discipline, right? And I was like, yes, of course, better discipline. Um, And so what was going to be two sermons, or one sermon rather, became two because the reality is we're not going to have a better resilience in the Christian walk until we first understand God's purposes in his discipline in our lives, And so we talked last week about uh, discipline in the form of hardships, and I I hope you heard, and I was very careful to say, that God's discipline for his children is never something that is punitive in nature. Jesus took all of that on the cross for us. It is always in love, whether it's corrective or, honestly, in this context, it's really more about training, even, and preparing us for God's good purposes and to make us holy. Holy. But nonetheless, and understandably, I think justifiably so, a lot of questions came from that sermon, um, as I had conversations with many of you throughout the week, and um, they're good questions. They're all the right questions that should be surfacing, and so uh, I felt it would be uh, doing an injustice not to actually speak to, um, biblically, best I can, some answers to those good questions before we get into verses 12 through 17 this morning of Hebrews 12. One of those questions was, does God's... Sovereignty, his purposeful sovereignty in our lives, and in the form of discipline, as we talked about it last week. Does that mean then that if God is sovereign over our suffering, that he doesn't grieve with us in our suffering? And the answer to that one's really easy it's absolutely not. It does not mean that. Um, Jesus gives us such a beautiful picture of who our God is as he walked around and ministered and taught. He was full of compassion always. And you see this pattern in Jesus that oftentimes before he met the practical need that somebody had in front of them, he just paused and it says he saw them and he had compassion for them. And then he meets their practical need. And so their pain and your pain, even though it's under God's sovereign umbrella, registers with God and he feels it deeply. And if that's true for Jesus, by the way, it's true for God, because Jesus said that if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. So we know that's the Father's heart towards his suffering children. Even anecdotally, as a parent, and many of you who are parents here can speak to this, um, I can speak to to the experiences that I've had in witnessing my children go through something painful. And there have been times that I've been in a position even to do something about it, uh, but I've also known through my flawed but nonetheless parental wisdom that sometimes my intervention might actually uh, prevent them from something good or it may actually hurt them in the long run if I don't allow for them to experience this difficulty, this hardship, whether it's because of their folly or just something that they need um, to learn. Um, And by the way, I would say it's far more painful for me to see my children hurt, to see my children picked on or bullied or something like that by someone than it is for for me to take others being critical of me. Those of you who are parents understand that. It's painful, right? It's, it hurts. Um, and so what I could do as a parent is completely just shelter them from, from any of that to the best of my ability. But I know that my kids need to learn resilience for their good and for their, their holiness. Um, and so, you know, I I will allow them. Sometimes I'll even be in proximity and I'll see, well, sometimes it's them treating their friends not so well. Sometimes it's their friend's not treating them so well, and I could just intervene and say, that's not true, don't you dare say that to my son or daughter. But instead, I kind of let it happen, and then I can come alongside of my kids later and help them to realize their identity isn't defined by those who might bully them into thinking that they're less than or inferior or whatever they were called. But their identity is defined ultimately in that they are made by a God who made them fearfully and wonderfully. They need to learn those lessons so they can find resilience on their own two feet as they continue to follow Jesus beyond the shelter of the roof in my home. And, and yet all that was just to say, like, I, it hurts me to see my kids when they make mistakes in their own folly and get hurt or they're sinned against by others. But I ultimately am deciding as their parents what's for their good in those moments when I allow that to happen. A second question that was a good one that was asked is: Does God's sovereignty over suffering implicate Him as evil or make Him complicit with, with the evil that is happening to us when we suffer? Um, in our context last week, we saw that those in the church in Rome, which is most likely where the group of Christians were that the author of Hebrews is writing to, they were experiencing some pretty painful persecution and were tempted as a result to give up on their faith, but it's actually called by the author the loving discipline of God. So how could the Lord be involved with something painful in our lives and still be good at the same time is, is the inevitable question that arises in all of our hearts and minds at some point in our walks with God, if not multiple times over the course of our journey. If I had an easy answer, I would give it to you and we would be done and move on. I don't. What I can tell you is this, the Lord is not evil. That the scriptures are clear on. He's not evil and he does no evil. Psalm 92, 15, Declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock. There is no no unrighteousness, or other translations, no evil in him. 1 John 1, 5, This is the message we have heard from him, Jesus, and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. There's a scene you may be familiar with in the Old Testament where Joseph, who becomes one of the patriarchs in the lineage of God's people, is sold into slavery by his brothers and goes through all sorts of other brutal and difficult and painful things before he arises into this place of prominence to be able to save the very people who sold him into slavery to begin with. And when his brothers come to him and recognize that this person, who's the second most powerful person in the world, Joseph now, um, is in a position... To punish them and to bring vengeance upon them. Um, what Joseph says, says to them instead is, What you intended for evil, God intended for good. So the responsibility of evil there is, uh, the evil act is attributed to Joseph's, Joseph's brothers, even though the responsibility of God's purposeful suffering over those circumstances is attributed to him. Reconciling these things is not easy, but what is clear. God is not evil. God never condones or celebrates evil as good. And in fact, God demands that there be justice for all the evil that's ever been committed. Some of that found itself accomplished in Jesus' suffering for the world on the cross, God dying for us. And some of it will be faced by those who refuse to accept Jesus's salvific work on the cross on their behalf. But God demands for there to be justice for all the evil that is done. So there's a lot of powerful and important truths about our God to be held in tension that remain nonetheless somewhat mysterious. So that's a a question that came up. And and then a third one um, is, does God's Purposeful sovereignty in our suffering. So, again, last week, in the context of disciplining his people in love, does that mean that we shouldn't try to do anything about it? Well, it's God's discipline, he has purposes in it, so I just have to resign myself to all this suffering, and that's the end of the conversation. The answer to that one isn't necessarily definitive. I think it's not necessarily is the answer, and here's what I mean by that. There's a difference between trying to escape God's discipline, which would be disobedience, and embracing God's provision that he makes for us in the midst of our suffering. Um, Some who were in the church at Rome, again, the ones who this letter was being written to, for example, had already or were tempted to abandon the faith because of the persecution that they had been enduring. That would be disobedience. That would be escaping, seeking to escape God's discipline. He has purposes, good purposes for them, and they're seeking to escape it. But nor does God ask us to go looking for suffering as some sort of badge of honor or vindication of our worth. There is wisdom to be had. When you look at Jesus' own life, there are occasions when he risked rejection, and he was eventually to the point of death. And then there were other times where he removed himself from those situations due to wisdom because his time had not yet come. That's just... That's just a matter of wisdom and walking by the Holy Spirit that God has given you as a gift when you placed your faith in Christ. So when it comes to other forms of suffering, like we talked about last week, physical forms of suffering, for example, I would say this, there is freedom when we can accept what we cannot change as God's loving purposes in our life that he has good for us in. There's freedom in that, when we can resign ourselves to that. And yet, how often do we see Biblically, but also in our own lives experientially, God's provision in the midst of our suffering. And in fact, some of what the author has already addressed in his letter here in Hebrews has been the the role and importance of the church as God's hands and feet in bringing alleviation to the suffering of his people in the midst of this persecution, strengthening one another in the midst of weaknesses. So even in the same context of the same book of the Bible, as we're told that God is over the discipline of, of the persecution that they're undergoing, he's not leaving them without the resources to be able to walk within that and for those burdens to actually be uplifted. Um, so that one is kind of a not necessarily is the answer to it. Um, certainly there are times and places when you are suffering in any manner of respect where you should be looking for how is God going to provide for you in the midst of it? Maybe it'll be a full-scale healing. Maybe it won't be healing from whatever emotional or physical wound that you carry, but he will provide support through the people of God and through his Holy Spirit and through other means um, to bring about relief so that you can persevere to the end. So there are tensions here. Counting our hardships as God's discipline um, doesn't always mean that we resign ourselves to it, but... Um, God often provides for us in the midst of our suffering. Um, Clearly, you know, these aren't all the questions that there are. And I would encourage you guys, especially on a subject like suffering and how we reconcile that with there being an all-good and all-powerful God, to continue to wrestle with those things. You could do that in the context of the tarot talk that we have next Sunday. After church, you could do that in your tribe. You could do that with other people. I encourage you to do that with the Lord first and foremost. um, Yeah. Don't forget that one. He's given you each other, but he also wants to minister to your heart in these mysterious places, which only he can bring about, the peace that transcends all human understanding, okay? Um, So with that fairly lengthy preamble, um, if we could turn together, if you're not already there, to Hebrews 12. Just six verses, by my count. Um, Verses 12 through 17. And then as you've found your spot, if you would stand, if you are able, as we read God's word together. Hebrews 12, 12 through 17. Therefore... Therefore, in light of everything we talked about last week, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Continue to work in our lives now through opening our eyes to see wonderful things in your word, wonderful things just meaning, Lord, things that we can't comprehend on our own. May your Holy Spirit um, skillfully, tenderly pierce our hearts now where you want us to submit ourselves to you differently fall in love with you anew, worship you more for who you are and who you've revealed yourself to be. We need your help to do that. We pray these things by the power of your Holy Spirit and in Jesus' name, amen. There are a couple of patterns in Scripture that we see elsewhere in the Bible that I want to point out right now because it's true of the passages that we've been in last week and this week as well. It's a helpful pattern to recognize because it's a pattern we can live out of as disciples if we understand this well. And that is this pattern of, and I'll use the fancy words and then I'll unpack them for you, indicatives before imperatives. Indicatives before imperatives that we see again and again in the way that God speaks to us through his people who've written the Scriptures. And we have this week an imperative or a series of imperatives that follow an indicative, which was last week. And so here's what those things are. An indicative is a declaration of something that is true, all right? And in the case of what we saw last week, a declaration of a powerful gospel truth that is meant to uplift you and encourage you in your faith as to who God is and how he's working in your life, all right? In other words, last week, God is at work, God is at work through all of your suffering to make you holy, and in the process is confirming that you are a loved son or daughter of his. That's the indicative, the fact to live in light of. And then this week are the imperatives, a call to obedience, um, a command to live out. That's what an imperative is in light of the truths. And so this week, that would be things like in light of what God is doing, in light of the discipline he's bringing, be encouraged Lift your hands, strengthen your knees, make straight paths, strive for peace and for holiness, and fight for each other to know God's grace and holiness. These are the imperatives that we are charged with this week in light of the indicative of last week. There's a second pattern that we see that's a bit mysterious in this journey of following Jesus and how discipleship works, and it's how there's both divine and personal roles in our sanctification, in our growth in Christ. Um, probably most famously, the scripture where you see this tension held is in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, where the Apostle Paul says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And if I was to rephrase that and kind of flip the order to present that tension from last week and this... I would say it is God working in you to make you holy through his loving discipline. So strengthen yourselves. Make straight paths for your feet. Strive for peace and for holiness. In other words, join God in what he is already doing. Don't resist him. So those are a couple of important patterns to kind of set the stage for the rest of our time here. So in light of the indicative, what God is at work doing in you to make you holy, there is an imperative today, and that imperative is now the better resilience that we'll look at, and, and also the imperative to holiness, to a holy way of living. But, and this is kind of the structure for our way we'll look at the passage today, there's both personal and corporate responsibility there. When it comes to a better resiliency and pursuing holiness, personal and corporate responsibility. So let's take a look at the personal responsibility we have first. This seems to be addressed to the individuals at first here in verses 12 and 13. And I'm just going to name up front that the first personal responsibility that we have is to cultivate the perspective that we have been um, delivered last week. Cultivate that. Don't just hear it once and forget it, or you'll find yourself right back in the place where you have drooping hands and weak knees. Now, when he says, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees, this is figurative. He's not calling us to all go to the gym and work out and get buffed so that we have like a good posture. Right? That's, that's not what he's saying here. He's saying it's, this is a call to live in light of the perspective that he has just unveiled for us. So that your posture maybe literally, but certainly figuratively, will defy your circumstances. They won't make sense to a watching world, even to us. We need the gospel presented through how those around us are suffering well because they understand that they have a loving God who is in charge. But that must be cultivated. We got to press in to understand that. We have to be reminded of it by ourselves as we go back to God and his word and by each other, And if we find ourselves still reluctant to believe the Lord could be in our suffering as an act of love, we tend to end up just being in a place where we find ourselves annoyed, incredulous, and maybe even mad and angry at God. And so then the temptation becomes to avoid these passages or to immediately project upon them what makes sense to us so that we can rationalize it in a way that kind of works with our sensibilities— But what happens then is, you know, if we turn a blind eye to what God's word is saying about these things, or we explain them away in a way that isn't meant to be, ultimately that's unhelpful to us. Ultimately, you're not going to, you may find strength temporally within yourself as you pull yourself up by the bootstraps, but you don't find the peaceful fruit of righteousness that only the Holy Spirit can produce in you. And so my charge, my encouragement to all of us today is to press in, to wrestle with these things. Many times with the things of God that are difficult for us to comprehend, it isn't your and my ability to reconcile and understand those things that brings the peaceful fruit of righteousness we talked about last week, but it's actually wrestling with him in these things. And immediately as I was thinking about that, Jacob came to mind. Um... Jacob, one of the patriarchs of Israel, brother of Esau, who we see later in our passage today. Um, Jacob is actually the one by whom the nation got their name, Israel. Uh, all because of this scene in which he wrestled with God. Now the context for that was he had been away. He, he'd fl- Jacob had his own issues, okay? He, he had deceived his brother Esau into getting his birthright. And he had fled because Esau was understandably ticked off to the point at which he was threatening to kill Jacob. So he, he lived, I don't know, it was 14 years or something like that, um, with his uncle Laban. But he was finally returning. He had all this family now and livestock. But he hears this rumor that that Esau is coming, and he's just assuming his brother is still going to be vengeful and want to kill him. So And Esau's coming with 400 men. So he leaves. Jacob leaves all of his livestock and family on one side of this river, and only he crosses, which I think... It actually, was a noble thing to do. He's like, well, if somebody's going to face the wrath of my brother, I want it to fall on me and not my family. Maybe he'll spare them. And so what he does then is he, you know, he starts to try to go to sleep. Um, you know, This night before his brother, he's going to have this confrontation. And um, in the middle of the night, he ends up waking up, and there's this person who appears to be a human, and he starts wrestling with him. And the whole scene is kind of mysterious and weird, uh, but he wrestles with this. Person all night long until finally, in the midst of this deadlock, the person who is really uh, the angel of the Lord, some manifestation of God, touches his hip and puts it out of socket. But all the while, Jacob is still clinging on and demanding this blessing um, from this being, who he is—he's—he's he's starting to understand is more than just a human. And in this whole journey of wrestling. Um, and with and it's springing from his own shortcomings and sins and poor decisions, um, he's humbled. As in an instant, he's crippled and can no longer continue this fight. And just realizes who am I to who am I to take on God? And he asks for this blessing and he receives this grace and he says, I saw the f- God face to face because he realizes this is more than human, yet my life has been delivered. So it was in the midst of this wrestling with his own sin involved and the things he doesn't understand fully about who God is that he comes to see God. And he doesn't say, I fully understand him now. Um, but he's, he's struggled and he's persevered in that struggle and he sees God and he's spared by God. And he comes to know him in a deeper way, and I, I don't have any doubt that, as strange and screwed up as Jacob is in some ways, part of the reason why he is in the hall of faith that we read a couple weeks ago in Hebrews 11 is because of this incident, and his willingness, imperfect as it was, to persevere in wrestling with the God, with God. That's the goal here for the author of Hebrews. He isn't worried about winning a theological debate and having complete and wholesale agreement by all those he's writing to. I mean, he would like that because he believes that will lead to their freedom, but that's what he's more interested in. He's more interested in these theological truths, these indicatives, setting these Christians he's writing to free who were struggling deeply with their circumstances and probably a bit disillusioned with God. And he wants to see them embrace what God was doing so that they would know peace and live fruitful, joy-filled lives despite their suffering. So my charge again, keep wrestling with these things. Even if it's lifelong, it's worth it. So that's the first one is we need to continue to cultivate this perspective if we're to persevere but the next imperative we're given today is more practical. It's that we're called to practice holiness. Make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but healed, the author says. This is about having enough self-awareness that we are aware of whether or of where we are um, weak because of sin or suffering in our lives. And then as a result of that awareness, we wisely order our life in such a way that leads to healing. And growth. That's the making straight paths part. On the other hand, if we either foolishly think that we are strong enough when we're actually weak, or if we're not intentional about planning to be successful in the areas that we're weak, then further injury in the form of grievous sin will inevitably happen. This is what is meant by um, what is out of joint or what is lame will be put out of joint if we don't make straight paths for ourselves. And just picture it then, if it's helpful, like a paved path that is making straight paths for you and following what God has revealed about himself and trusting him in that, though you may have a limp, though you may have some parts of your body that are lame, where you're struggling because of suffering or sin, versus saying, you know what, that way looks better, going off that paved path onto a rocky and rooty path, which you're going to trip and fall, and then whatever was whatever was lame to begin with is completely put out of joint. That's what the author is saying here. There's a similar charge by the Apostle Paul in Romans 13, 14, where he says, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ, that would be making straight paths, and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Very similar principle the Apostle Paul is conveying there. Bill Mounts, who's a Greek scholar and commentator, he says this, at that point in Romans 13, while the appetites of sin remain until the glorious day of our complete transformation into the likeness of Christ, so while temptation remains and we're not fully sanctified and those appetites for sin remain, we are to deny them any opportunity of expression. We are not even to consider the possibility of allowing them to fulfill their evil intentions through us. And I think that the author here of Hebrews gives us a picture of where this ultimately goes if we don't make straight paths. And that's with Esau in Hebrews 12, 15 to 17. So let me reread that one more time, and we'll talk a little bit about Esau. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. So the original scene, which we kind of heard bits and pieces of when I was even talking about Jacob, comes from Genesis 25. Esau was a man of the forest and the woods and a hunter. So he's out there hunting. He returns from the hunt unsuccessful. He doesn't have anything to show for it. He's very hungry, and he demands a bowl of stew from his brother Jacob, who had been preparing some stew because he's so exhausted and famished from this hunt. Jacob, who we previously discussed, has his own issues, takes advantage of the situation, sees his brother's weakness, knows his brother well enough to know, uh, where, you know what he cares about, and he makes Esau swear to give him, to give Jacob his birthright, which was his inheritance, Esau's inheritance, which was the blessing of the firstborn son because they were twins, but Esau was the firstborn son. Basically, what that would mean is that Jacob, in this exchange, would then take over the family business. He would get it all once Isaac died. So there were material things involved, but there was also a spiritual element involved. Esau, as a firstborn son, would have been the one through whom the promises of God would have come. That's important too when it comes to Esau's character because he just threw it away in that moment for a bowl of stew. And then in one of the more telling statements from that scene, we're told that after that exchange had taken place, thus Esau despised his birthright. It doesn't really mean maybe like hated it. It does mean hated it, but in the sense that he treated it as trivial and light and insignificant. The interesting thing in the Genesis account is that there's nothing that explicitly indicts Esau as an immoral man. I mean, there's, there's things you can infer there, but there's no mention of sexual immorality as his vice, but there are things we can infer from this description about him. Number one, that he gave up his birthright so easily means that he treated holiness very lightly. He didn't have much reverence for God or the things of God, Now, he probably would have said that he did. He was a part of this group of people of faith, maybe culturally speaking, so he probably would have said he did, but the proof was in the pudding pudding or stew, as you would, because a bowl of stew was worth more to him than his birthright. But there's a second implication here, too Esau was a very carnal man, he was driven by his fleshly desires. What his flesh craved was what dictated his priorities and his life choices. And here's where I want to go with this for a moment. That doesn't happen overnight. That happens slowly, over time, as we say yes, over and over, to the instantaneous allure of carnal pleasures, over the delayed gratification of trusting God and the deeper joy and contentment that follows I want to share with you a parable to kind of illustrate this slow progression and how that can work in our lives. There was a man who heard a rumor about a pool deep in the woods where there was a beautiful woman who would go to bathe in private. Curiosity got the best of him, and we'll call that temptation. So he went looking for this pool. The woods were thick, it was slow going, and there were thorns and thistles His clothes were torn, he was bleeding, and he started to wonder whether it was worth it. He had traveled for many miles away from his home and was about to turn back when he heard beautiful singing in the distance. And as he moved closer, he could barely make out through the thick forest the silhouette of a bathing woman. He immediately felt shame, and he retreated and returned home. But each day, the impulse to get a closer look grew stronger, and he would go a bit further, And a bit closer to the pool in hopes of getting a better look. But he would always turn away, realizing it would be wrong of him to look upon this woman. Still, day after day, he would go, inching closer. And all the while, the path that had once been arduous was now well-worn. And the shame that had once been like a hot flame had cooled. And he now drank in his fill of what he saw without remorse. Over time, the man's desires became so all-consuming that he remained at the pool's edge Instead of returning home, awaiting the woman's arrival day after day, failing to return home even to meet the basic needs of his growing hunger as he grew weaker and weaker. Finally, he realized that if he did not return home to eat, he would die out there. So he turned to walk the long way home, but found that the path, once well-worn, had completely grown over thicker than it had been before. Not having enough strength or will to fight his way through the thorns and the thistles and find his way home He remained at the water's edge, the place that his carnal desires had brought him, and he died there. Here's the point and the connection to our text. You don't trade your birthright for a bowl of stew on a whim. A life that habituates making provision for the flesh's desires does this. And there will come a point where you couldn't turn back even if you wanted to. Now, honestly... I don't know whether the blessing that Esau could no longer inherit that our passage speaks of here represents salvation or rewards. Scholars debate this, and frankly, either is a possibility based upon teaching elsewhere in the Bible, and we talked about this even more back in Hebrews chapter 6. But what's true in either case here is a sobering warning against the devastating consequences of embracing what God calls sinful, which will have eternal ramifications— And while the warning on the one hand is for the individual, there's also a warning for the community at large here as well. And that's where the author turns next as he talks about the corporate responsibility we have in verses 14 to 17. Because we have a responsibility, Terra Nova, to fight for each other's joy and we do this through upholding God's standard of holiness. And so let's talk about fighting for each other's joy. Hebrews 12, 15 See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled. So that first part here is so important. Um, what the author is not saying is this. See to it that no one sins. That's not what he said. He said, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. The wording is not by accident. It informs number one, perspective, and number two, motivation. The perspective is one of humility. The perspective is one that acknowledges we too are sinners saved by grace. We live in light of the grace that we have been saved by as we seek to make sure that no one around us fails to obtain the grace of God. And the motivation is for others' good. There should be a desire on our part for for people to see and receive God's grace, not just to stop them from sinning. Because seeing God's grace magnifies the gospel, what God has done for us through Christ, ultimately on the cross. Trying to keep people from sinning at its worst can just be demanding behavior modification of those around us. It falls short of the goal the author of Hebrews and ultimately God is calling us to in each other's lives. The truth is that the greatest motivation for holiness springs from a deep awareness that we are sinners saved by grace. When you are a recipient of grace, you want to live a holy life. The greater your awareness of God's grace, the greater you desire to live for God. This is what Jesus meant when he was sitting with Simon the Pharisee around a table, and in Luke 7, a woman comes in, and she was probably a prostitute. And she took the perfume that she'd used for her profession, it was costly, and with it and with her tears, she ends up anointing Jesus' feet, and Jesus says to Simon, she loves much because she has been forgiven much. In other words, she understood the grace of God in her life. She was all in for leaving her old way of life and following Jesus because she understood grace. And so she began to pursue a life of holiness, starting with smashing that jar of perfume that symbolized her old way of life. Do you see the connection between encountering God's grace, not just being told to stop your sin, and wanting to live a life of holiness? The author also says in verse 14, but without holiness, no one will see the Lord. So this is what I mean by fighting for each other's joy. I yearn for myself personally and for you guys to obtain the grace of God, to recognize sin in our lives and the radical grace of God that extends forgiveness to us so that we will strive for holiness. Because in striving for holiness, we will see God. And in seeing God, you will know the joy that will empower you to persevere through suffering. At the same time, the author is acknowledging here that there is a real danger in allowing sin to persist in a community especially where it's normalized or even embraced and that leads what that'll do is it'll lead other people down the path the same path that Esau was on and so he continues see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by many by it many become defiled so just some practical thoughts then as we move toward a close on when and how we address sin in community because clearly it is something we need to be aware of and speaking into each other's lives on. So first, let me just um, define some different things that may be helpful in this process of addressing sin in each other's lives. Struggle versus defiance on the part of the one who is perhaps in sin. Um, There's a difference between these two things. There's a difference between struggling in sin and being defiant toward God. The former, those who are struggling, may have sin in their life, but they're not denying it. They're not pretending it doesn't exist. They acknowledge that there's a need to change, and ultimately there's even a desire to change, even if that sin persists. Defiance is different. A defiant attitude towards loving confrontation of something that the Bible clearly depicts as sin reflects a heart that's no longer submitting to God, but is submitting to self. One of the gods of our age is human autonomy, self-autonomy. And that is where it becomes so dangerous to the community. That attitude of defiance is what we need to be on the lookout for in our own lives and in each other's lives. Another paradigm for us to consider is... Um, Grace versus toleration. Um, And this has to do more from the standpoint of those of us who are pressing in, coming alongside of somebody else in their journey who may be in sin. Um, There's a difference between allowing for a process of sanctification and tolerating sin. Allowing for a process of sanctification recognizes that growth in holiness takes time and is a process. And it also stems from the humility in our own journey that knows that change doesn't happen overnight and is often messy. We get that because we are fellow sinners saved by grace. And so there is a wisdom that recognizes when the time is to press in and when the time is to leave space to remember that only God can change a heart. That's what it means to recognize and allow for a process of sanctification. But tolerating sin is different tolerating sin is when there are ways of living and thinking that are being openly embraced and the belief is that there's no need to lovingly confront be confronted because these ways of living or thinking aren't wrong to begin with and so nobody's confronting because nobody's acknowledging that what the bible clearly depicts as sin is actually sin that would be tolerating sin and where sin is tolerated, it not only causes those individuals to fail to obtain the grace of God, because it's not believed that grace is even needed in those instances, but it can spread to the community on the whole, so it must be addressed. By the way, that quote, the root of bitterness that's talked about in our passage, that actually comes from Deuteronomy twenty nine eighteen. 18. It's Moses writing to Israel, and he's warning about the dangers of idolatry that are creeping into the community through the acceptance of worldly values. So that's the context in Deuteronomy that the author of Hebrews is bringing into view. So then, how do we address sin? For today, let me offer the difference between approaching someone like a Pharisee versus approaching someone like a physician. Pharisees understand what sin is, they're not even wrong, it is a sin. They're correct in what they identify most of the time. But they approach those around them in a way that comes across like the sin police rather than fighting for that person's holiness so that they can know true joy. And a Pharisee probably comes across this way because they see themselves as above the need for grace in their own lives or at the very least they think that everybody else needs more grace than they do. A Pharisee's ultimate mission is to keep the community pure but it stems from either a motivation of fear or pride. Pride in that, well, this is the way that things should be. Why can't more people be like me? Or fear being, man, what's going to happen if my community is not perfect? Is everything going to fall apart? Now, there is a place for concern over this, but sometimes the scale can tip into the realm of fear and a lack of faith in God's ability to preserve his imperfect people. On the other hand, consider a physician. A physician understands what sin is too and its devastating effects. But your interaction with a physician feels more like a good and honest doctor. They're going to shoot straight with you. They're not going to lie to you about uh, about your condition. But it's also evident that they're there to help you in the process of healing so long as you're willing to allow them to do that. And their motivation is the wellness and welfare of those around them because they truly desire to see those people thrive in health and experience the ultimate health of seeing the beauty of the Lord and then being transformed by him. So we want to be a community that is seeking holiness together and realizes the dangers of tolerating sin, but we also want to do it in a way that reflects Jesus more than the Pharisees. You know, the Pharisees were highly respected throughout the community in Jesus' day. From hindsight's 2020, like we see them and we color them in this very negative light. In that day, they were the most virtuous of all the people in Israel. But do you know what distinguished them from Jesus? Compassion. Jesus was more merciful than any of them. He was more virtuous rather than any of them. But he also carried a posture of compassion with him wherever he went. There's a scene in Matthew chapter 9, verses 10 to 13 that says this. And Jesus reclined at table in the house, and behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice for I came not to call the righteous but sinners. That's the posture that we want to take towards one another as we address sin for the sake of experiencing God's mercy, growing in holiness and seeing more of God. We want to be more like a physician than we do a Pharisee. And the last thing I'll say is this is a community responsibility. This isn't just your pastor's job, Pastor Reuben, Pastor Matt and myself. Like hey, this person doesn't have their act together. You should go and do something about that. That is certainly appropriate in some cases for us to come alongside of you. But only if you've tried to lovingly have those conversations yourself and there's still a reluctance to be able to accept your pressing in. That's the pattern that we see in Matthew 18. If you see a brother or sister in sin, you go to them, you address it. If that doesn't work, you bring somebody else and then eventually the elders get involved. Many times now in Hebrews, the author has talked about the community responsibility when it comes to this aim of cultivating holiness. Hebrews 3.13, But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Or Hebrews 10.24, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, which is in the context of sin. That's why they weren't doing love and good works. The one another's there is It's a community effort. And in many cases, you are probably in closer proximity in relationship to some of the people in our congregation than even your three pastors are. And God may more effectively use you in your brother or sister's life as a result and by virtue of that relationship that you have with them. So it's a community effort. So in close, in summary, because we've talked about a lot last week and today, Hardship's going to happen in this life. It's inevitable. Jesus promises, in this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. And then in Hebrews 12, the author encourages his readers to count the hardship they have, not as God's abandonment, but as God's correction and training for their good and their holiness. So therefore, today, cultivate this perspective so that your posture in life as you experience hardships and suffering can defy those circumstances. And practice holiness, that you may not fall into the snares of sin, and so that you may see God as the end goal, and the world will see more of God through you as you glorify him. And finally, take seriously our responsibility to one another to see to it that no one fails to obtain the amazing grace of God. And let's be on our guard towards the temptation to tolerate sin. But let's press into those things in each other's lives as a good and loving physician would, with the desire to see each other grow in the Lord and for the desire to see the peaceful, um, uh, the, the, the peaceful uh, fruit of righteousness blossom in each other's lives. Let's pray and ask for God's help in that endeavor. Father, we acknowledge you are sovereign. We acknowledge you are good. We acknowledge you are holy. And we don't always know how to reconcile these things. But there is no one here today who has called you Savior and Lord that doesn't desire to see you more and to know you more. So in whatever ways you need to, by your Spirit, open our eyes to see these wonderful things you've revealed about yourself with your lens and perspective and not our own. And Lord, would you enable us, imperfect as we are, to be extensions of your holiness and your grace in each other's lives. Because you have created us as a community to be extensions of your purpose, of sanctification, of you being glorified, and of the world seeing something different that would defy our circumstances, that would lead them to want to know the God of this universe as well. And so we pray all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. As we about about ready to head into a time of communion, Father, would you just reveal him more profoundly to us through his shed blood and broken body on our behalf? In Jesus' name, amen.